Hey guys, welcome back. What's up? We are on episode 10. We have made it to the double digits. Um, I'm Brooke, and this is M is for Murder. Let's dive right into it, shall we? This week is the letter J, and J is for John Joseph Famolaro. On June 2nd, 1991, Denise Huber, age 23, stuck her head into her parents' door while they were watching TV and said, quote, I love you both. Don't worry about me. She then left her parents' home in Newport Beach to go to a popular rock concert. She drove to Huntington Beach, where she picked up her friend, Robert Calvert. Originally, she wanted to go to the concert with her boyfriend, Stephen Horrocks, but he was unable to go, so he asked his friend Robert to go with her. When Denise and Robert got to the concert, they sat in the parking lot for a little bit pre-gaming with vodka and orange juice before going in. During the show, they shared a 20-ounce beer, and then after, Denise drove to a restaurant bar in Long Beach where she had two more beers before taking Robert home. She dropped him off around 2.05 a.m. and had headed back to her parents' house. To Robert, Denise did not seem intoxicated. She had been wearing a jacket, dark dress, black stockings, and high heels, and she had no trouble walking in her heels. But Denise never returned home that night. In the morning, Denise's mom, Ione Huber, was incredibly worried. She called a friend of Denise's, Tammy Brown, to see if she knew where Denise was. Tammy didn't, so she made a few phone calls to other friends before jumping in the car to go look for Denise. At around 10 p.m., Tammy found Denise's car. It was parked on the shoulder of southbound Highway 73 near the Newport Beach exit. This part of the highway is called the Corona Del Mar Freeway, and it was less than three miles from the Huber home. The car had a flat tire, and the emergency flashers were still on. Now, the area where the car was found was well lit at night and had many emergency call boxes nearby that were visible from the car. It was also near an opening in the chain link fence bordering the highway that led down a hill to an adjacent city street gas stations, restaurants, payphones, and even a hotel. Denise would have easily been able to walk from her car to any of these things and seek help. Her friends and family insisted it was very unlike Denise to not let them know where she was or what she was doing. She was a very responsible young woman that worked two jobs so that she would be able to afford her own place. Denise had disappeared without a trace. And like with so many missing missing persons cases, the leads ran dry and the investigation went cold. Over the next few years, Ione and Denise's father, Dennis, looked tirelessly for their daughter. They spearheaded a nationwide search for her and always had hope that they would find her. They had troubles with work and their jobs, trouble eating and sleeping, Not knowing what happened to their daughter took a serious toll on them. But in 1994, the Hubers would begin their journey towards closure. Elaine Canalia and her then-boyfriend, now-husband, Jack Court, 
were operators of a paint manufacturing business based in Phoenix, Arizona. They had been in business for about four years after meeting while employed at a different job. Not long after starting their business and finding success, they had fallen in love. In May 1994, Elaine and Jack met 34-year-old John Famolaro at a swap meet in Prescott Valley, Arizona. John had been a painting contractor in California, but business had not been as good as he had hoped when he moved to Arizona, so he was looking to sell his surplus supplies. Elaine and Jack ran into John over the next few weekends at the swap meet. On July 9th, 1994, the couple ran into John again. He was in the van that he used to transport his supplies, and in casual conversation, he mentioned he also owned a pickup truck. He also mentioned in this conversation that he had a lot of colorant stored at his home. Elaine and Jack wanted to buy the product, so John told them to follow him home to pick it up. On the way to the house, Jack's 10-year-old grandson, who was with them, said that he needed to use the bathroom. So Elaine and Jack followed John into a new development of luxury custom houses along a really nice golf course. John led the couple around the side of the house to a side driveway that ended at a wooden fence around the yard. Backed into the driveway was a Ryder rental truck surrounded by unlabeled cans and it was partially covered with a tarp. Elaine was immediately suspicious. She thought, he has a van and a pickup truck. Why would he need a rental truck too and one that looks like it had been parked there for months? The couple followed the contractor to the backyard where there were hundreds of paint cans and painting supplies scattered everywhere. The three of them began loading the colorant into Lane and Jack's truck. Jack's grandson reminded them that he needed to use the restroom, but when they asked John if Jack's grandson could use it, John said no because there was no running water in the house. Elaine said John was very abrupt, but they didn't push it. They finished loading up the truck, and Elaine, Jack, and Jack's grandson began to leave. They noticed that the Ryder rental truck had Massachusetts plates. Elaine just could not shake this feeling that something was off about the van, so she wrote down the license plate number and the rental company's serial number. John stood in his yard and watched them pull away from the house. Back in Phoenix at their warehouse, Elaine forgot about the rental truck until July 12th when a law enforcement friend came by to buy some paint. Detective Steve Gregory of Phoenix Police Department had known Elaine and Jack for several years. Elaine mentioned the bizarre rental truck and passed along the information she had jotted down, telling the detective that she believed it to be stolen. With his interest peaked, Detective Gregory called the Ryder Rental Company and inquired about the truck. Within an hour, the company had called him back and informed him that the truck had been missing for six months from Orange County, California. For some reason, it had been overlooked and never reported. But the next morning, the company called Orange County's Sheriff's Department and reported the van stolen. Detective Gregory called the Yavapai County Sheriff's Office in Arizona and let them know about the stolen van with Massachusetts plate 
486-595 and the tip on where it might be located. The next morning, July 13th, Deputy Joe D. Giacomo, that's a mouthful, received the dispatch to go check on a possibly stolen vehicle. The deputy drove around the neighborhood and spotted the truck. But as he approached the vehicle, he compared the license plate numbers only to find that they were different. This van had a main license plate with the number 488708. Because the information was not the same, he had to leave the truck and request more information. So Deputy D. Giacomo called Detective Gregory to verify where the truck had been seen. Detective Gregory just happened to be at Elaine's warehouse picking up his paint when the call came through. He verified the truck's location with her. It was the same one Deputy D. Giacomo had found. They all believed that someone had changed the license plate. Since the Ryder Rental Company wanted to press charges, Deputy D. Giacomo had to go back for the truck. He took a backup officer with him. They checked the VIN number, and it was the truck they were looking for. There were buckets and all sorts of unlabeled cans surrounding the truck, and there was also a thick electrical cord coming out of the back leading up and over the fence. Deputy D. Giacomo called the Prescott Area Narcotics Team, or PANT, believing that they might have stumbled upon a drug lab. That afternoon, PANT arrived. After being briefed, they tested all the buckets and cans around the truck, but found no trace of chemicals used in drug labs. They also examined the white pickup parked beside the rental truck and found nothing suspicious, but they called it in to find out the owner's name. A locksmith was called out to unlock the back of the rental truck door. Once inside, law enforcement found more paint cans, but near the end, they could see a large freezer chest. The electrical cord was powering the chest, and the appliance was running, keeping whatever was inside cold. It was locked and had several strips of thick masking tape sealing the lid. The locksmith opened the lock on the freezer as well. Detective Mike Garcia, a member of the pant team, suited up in an apron, rubber gloves, and a mask and opened the freezer. Immediately, he was hit in the face with a foul odor, one he said smelled like rotting flesh. Inside, they could see a large object completely frozen in black plastic garbage bags at the bottom. Detective Garcia reached in and felt along the top section of the bags. He quickly drew back his hand and said, it feels like a human arm. The pant officers closed the freezer lid and called Scott Masher, Lieutenant Supervisor of the Homicide and Major Crimes Unit. Lieutenant Masher opened the freezer and saw the frozen bags, but also saw what looked to be bodily fluids that had frozen at the bottom. After cutting through three layers of bags, Masher found a naked human body frozen in the fetal positions with the hand secured behind the back with metal handcuffs. There was no identifying information and no signs that the person had been killed in the freezer, so the freezer was sealed and the entire truck was towed to forensic pathologist in Phoenix, Arizona. The external examination and autopsy was performed by Dr. Ann Buchholz, a medical examiner in Phoenix. 
She collected different samples from all over the body while it was still frozen in order to try and avoid any evidence of sexual assault being lost during the thawing process. The head had been wrapped in three white kitchen trash bags and gray tape covered from the mouth to the upper eyelids. There were extensive injuries to the head and there was a cloth gag that had been stuffed in the mouth. Two days later, the body had finally thawed. Dr. Buchholz had to use bolt cutters to remove the handcuffs. She took fingerprints, which were then matched, to those that had been taken for Denise Huber's license. Denise had finally been found. John Famolaro, the resident of the home where the freezer was found, was arrested that same day for first-degree murder. Dr. Buchholz described Denise's skull in the autopsy as, quote, basically shattered. The blows had been inflicted after the white kitchen trash bags had been placed over her head. This could be determined by finding embedded pieces of plastic bag in the wounds. Using two others, two other doctors' help, Dr. Buchholz concluded that Denise suffered from at least 31 blows to the head. There was no way to tell if it was more than that, which it might have been, because some of the blows could have overlapped. Denise died from blunt force trauma. The amount of blood she would have lost from the blows to her head would have been absolutely enormous. The day after Denise's body was discovered, July 14, 1994, officers executed a search warrant on the home where the rental truck had been found, John Famolaro's home. Law enforcement collected over 100,000 items from the house. In the garage, there were two boxes next to each other labeled Christmas. They were identified by investigators as boxes 212 and 213. Now, inside box 212, there was a large black bag similar to the one Denise had been found in. Inside that bag were smaller boxes that contained Denise's belongings, such as her wallet, checkbook, purse, makeup compact, car keys, lipstick, and other items she had been wearing the night she disappeared. Her jacket, dress, underwear, and heels. The strap on her dress had been torn and was barely hanging on, and there were severe scrapes on the back of both heels. Box 212 also contained a bloodstained hammer, a bloodstained pair of men's jeans, a bloodstained sweatshirt, dried, blood-soaked rags, and a pair of surgical gloves turned inside out. The other box, box 213, contained the empty box for the handcuffs, a blood-stained nail puller, more bloody rags, and a white trash bag similar to the one found on Denise's head. It also contained a roll of tape, and the end of that tape matched up with the tearing on the piece of tape found on Denise's head. The keys to the handcuffs were found in a desk drawer in the house, and the key to the freezer was found inside the truck. Investigators also found the receipt for the freezer, showing that it had been ordered on June 10, 1991, a week after Denise went missing, and it had been delivered the next day, June 11th. They also found articles from newspapers regarding Denise's disappearance and videotapes with taped news segments about the disappearance. But where was Denise killed? Well, back in 1991, John was living in California. 
boxes 212 and 213 had shipping labels on them addressed to Dragonfly at a warehouse in Laguna Hills, California. In July 1991, John owned and operated his painting business out of that same warehouse. He also used that as his living space. The business next to John's in that warehouse was an apparel manufacturing business named Dragonfly. So on July 18, 1994, Lori Crutchfield, a forensic scientist with Orange County Crime Lab, examined a corner of the former warehouse unit where it was suspected that blood had been cleaned away, and the initial test for traces of human blood were positive. So they removed some drywall and framing and discovered an area of, quote, thick, deep maroon color where the concrete met the wood floorboard. They took up this piece to test it further. Another forensic scientist for the Orange County Crime Lag, Lab, not lag, Lab, Mary Hong, found that the blood stains from the wood floorboard um, taken from the warehouse, the nail puller found in John's Arizona home, and many of the other bloodied items recovered could not have come from John, but could have come from Denise. This was based on DNA testing using two genetic markers. Most of the blood found on the men's genes taken from the house was also consistent with Denise's blood. There were also samples taken to determine if Denise had been sexually assaulted, but because of the condition of the body and having been frozen, it was very difficult for scientists to determine and agree on the presence of sperm or not. So during the trial, the defense wanted to show that Denise was not forcibly abducted. They put Costa Mesa police officers Thomas Coote and Burton Santee on the stand. They were the ones that examined the area around Denise's car the day after her disappearance. They testified that they saw no blood or drag marks or other signs of a struggle in or around Denise's car. A newspaper carrier named Cynthia Brown was put on the stand and testified that she saw a blue Honda car with flashing emergency lights parked on the shoulder of the freeway, but saw no one around at all. Beth Goss was a defense investigator that examined the hill where Denise's car was found. She had a woman close to Denise's height and weight wear similar shoes to the ones that Denise had been wearing and had her walk up and down the hill. The shoes showed similar damage to the scrapes on the back of Denise's shoes, although it was less damage. As part of the penalty phase, the prosecution wanted to show John's prior violent offenses involving forcible use of handcuffs. They presented evidence from two of John's ex-girlfriends. So in 1987, Cheryl W. was dating John. They took a trip to New York City, and when they were play fighting in bed, John handcuffed Cheryl by both arms to a bar across the window. He pulled off her nightgown, opened the curtains on the window, and walked out of the hotel room laughing, leaving her there naked for several hours. Cheryl was traumatized, and by the time John came back, still laughing, Cheryl decided to play along so that she would be able to return home safely. Once they got back to California, Cheryl ended the relationship. But in 1991, she resumed it, and they even remained friends after he moved to Arizona. 
In April 1989, John was dating Nancy R. They had been dating about a year when they were at John's house in California. Nancy and John were kissing, but she was in a hurry and had to leave. When she told John this, he got upset and pushed her back onto the bed. When she tried to get up, he got on top of her and they struggled for 10 to 15 minutes. During this, John pried her legs apart and unzipped her shorts before sitting on her chest, pinning her arms down with his knees and then raising her arms above her head and handcuffing her. John undid his pants, pulled Nancy's shorts down, and she said he gave her the most intense stare and a look she had never seen before. She began to cry and threaten to make a report of rape. John jumped off and uncuffed her. Nancy did not see him for three or four months, but eventually they reconciled. They got engaged in early 1991, but she ended the engagement in June 1991. Remember that because I believe it's important. Denise's parents testified that their lives were turned completely upside down. Ione could not sleep or eat for several days. She sent flyers and businesses all across the country. They did numerous television interviews. Dennis had this sick feeling in his stomach that never went away. Every time he heard the news about a body or human bones being found, he would get violently ill. He was scheduled to open his own business on the day that Denise disappeared, but he never did because he could not think of anything else besides his missing daughter. The defense called more than 20 witnesses to the stand, including John's mother, brother, sister, and niece, neighbors and classmates from his childhood, a woman he rescued from a knife-wielding attacker, co-workers, friends, and his priest. So here's a little background on John Famolaro. John was born to Angelo and Anne Famolaro in Long Island, New York on June 10th, 1957. He was the youngest of three, and when he was about one, his family moved to California. His dad was an Air Force veteran that worked as a businessman, and his mom was a temperamental stay-at-home mom. The kids had a loving relationship with their dad, but their mom was very verbally abusive. She frequently used religion to justify her behavior. The family frequented church, but did not socialize or interact with any other members. Outside of the house, the yard was kept and tidy, but inside the house, there were hoarded stacks of newspapers, food, laundry, and boxes. As a kid, John was quiet and often described as a loner. He was never violent, but he did have mood swings that went from hyperactive to depressed. During his hyperactive stages, he engaged in obsessive rituals. Not surprisingly, John received little attention from his mom. She tended to give all her attention to his older brother, Warren, who excelled in school activities. But he was very close with his older sister, Marion, and his maternal grandmother. Marion played the role of John's protector and stand-in mother, helping him with homework and stuff like that. As both Warren and John grew up, their mom continued to bathe them, even as preteens. According to Warren, she would pay special attention to washing their genitals. She did not allow them to take sex ed classes and often entered their rooms at night to make sure they weren't masturbating. 
It might be obvious to say, but she did not allow them to date. Again, according to Warren, one time when he was in college, his mom followed him and a girlfriend back to a motel room. When Warren left, his mom barged in and attacked his girlfriend. She swore at her and slapped her in the face. She went on and on about religion and sex and claimed the girlfriend would die that night. When the girl inquired about how she would die, Warren's mom tackled her and began choking her. Luckily, the girl broke free and called the police. Warren eventually convinced her not to press charges. When John was a teenager, his mom sent him to seminary. Not because she wanted him to be a priest, but because she wanted the good behavior to rub off on him. After graduating, he went to a Catholic liberal arts college and met Ruth W. They dated on and off for two to three years, and during that time, Ruth had an abortion. Near the end of their relationship, she became pregnant again. John proposed, but Ruth turned him down. She gave the child up for adoption, and then she moved to Texas. John was devastated. He had wanted to raise the child on his own, but had lost the custody battle. This is also around the time that John's mom became involved in local politics. She campaigned against abortion, pornography, and a local adult theater. On the same day that she announced her candidacy, Warren was arrested for sexually molesting a 10-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy and for having unlawful intercourse with a 17-year-old girl. This ended the political campaign of John's mom. Warren was convicted and committed to Patton State Hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender. Warren's parents were so embarrassed, they moved away to Prescott, Arizona. John attended different colleges over the next several years, and at one point, he even studied to be a chiropractor, but never finished school for it. One day at a bus stop, John saw an assailant grab a woman and hold a knife to her side. John tackled the assailant, took away the knife, and pinned him down on the ground until the cops arrived. Eventually, John's grandmother that he was close with moved to Arizona to be closer to John's mom. This is when John got into the painting business. He hired a team of painters and moved into the warehouse in Laguna Hills. He became more social and had several girlfriends over the years. His friends and ex-girlfriends said he had a good sense of humor and was fun, intelligent, and polite, but they also described him as secretive, manipulative, and a smooth talker. His smooth swings continued, and he began to hoard papers and books and boxes. On May 27, 1991, a week before Denise disappeared, John made a 42-minute phone call to the Hotline Health Center in Orange County. This center helped callers with issues of depression and thoughts of suicide. It was also used as a prayer line. In June 1991, John called Marion and cried, saying he was upset about something that happened years prior. In the summer of 1992, John moved to California, from California to Arizona to be closer to his father, who had been hospitalized. Marion and her family had also moved to Arizona as well, and John was very close with his nieces. So back to the trial. In May 1996, John was convicted of first-degree murder, kidnapping, and sodomy by a jury made up of nine women and three men. 
A year later, in September 1997, John Joseph Famalaro was sentenced to death for one of Orange County's most notorious murders. Quote, just imagine what was going through her mind, said Judge John J. Ryan about Denise's last moments. John, now 63, was transferred to San Quentin, where he still remains on death row today. Sorry, that was Derby. There must be a package being delivered. Um, So he's still on death row today. In 2011, the California Supreme Court affirmed the death penalty with a unanimous decision that John received a fair trial in 1997. It is believed by many people involved in this case that Denise was not the only victim of John Famolaro. During the investigation, police interviewed a Phoenix sex worker who said she had to fight to get out of John's car and run into the desert to escape from being killed by him. Her driver's license was in her purse, which she left in his car. In 1994, during the search of John's home, that woman's driver's license was found along with 12 other driver's licenses. There was also a lot of female clothing, dresses, underwear, and shoes found at his home during the search. Cadaver dogs were even brought in, which detected human scent under the home. However, nothing was found. One of the lingering questions of this case is, why? Well, in 2018, almost 30 years later, a friend of John's called Denise's parents and told them that a woman whom John had dated left him around the same time of Denise's initial disappearance. And she looked identical to Denise. They had the same hair color, the same haircut, the same car, same height, same weight, etc. Remember when I told you about Nancy, whom John first dated in 1989? She's the one that broke off their engagement in June 1991, the same month that Denise went missing. Was it possibly a case of mistaken identity, or did John snap when he saw a woman needing help on the side of the road that looked exactly like the woman that broke his heart? We may never know. That wraps up this episode on John Joseph Famolaro and the murder of Denise Huber. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review. It really does help get the word out. And tell your true crime friends. I know you've got them. If you have questions, concerns, comments, suggestions, or just want to chat true crime, please reach out. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at M is for Murder Pod. And technically, I'm also on Facebook at M is for Murder Podcast, but I rarely use Facebook. You can also reach me via the website MSForMurder.com, where you can also find all the sources used for each episode. Don't forget, new episodes drop every Friday. Next week, the letter K. Have a great weekend, stay safe, and I'll see you on the internet.